to 47. And I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption." You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about this patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptised, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptised and there were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Thank you, Janet. The, uh, the young ones are going to head out to Sunday school uh, now. Uh, so if you want to, if you're age kind of 4 to 11, you want to head out the, the doors at the back there. What we're going to do this Sunday school, they're going to come back in uh, after the message, uh, and then we can all be together and celebrate the baptism. Before we get to the baptism, we're going to spend some time thinking about uh, that passage that Janet's just read to us uh, from the book of Acts. There in the book of Acts, we see uh, the beginning of the New Testament church. And as we uh, turn there, we're just going to pause and pray and ask for God's help, both for ourselves and for the young ones, uh, as well as they think uh, through Acts 2. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we turn to your word now, uh, we recognize that we come as those who are needy. Lord, we remember again that we do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from your mouth. And so as we turn to your eternal word, we pray that you would feed us and nourish us. We pray that you would provide for us what we need to keep on the journey of faith. Well, we pray for the young ones uh, as they're out in Sunday school and the teachers as they teach the young ones. We pray your blessing upon them. We pray that early in their life they may also Come to know and trust Jesus. We ask these prayers that our Saviour may be glorified. Amen. I thought uh, with us having a baptism this morning, it would be a good opportunity uh, for us as a church uh, just to stop and take stock uh, and think about who we are and what we're about and uh, what we're aiming at. Uh, recently, we went away on holiday uh, to Scotland, and yes, we did get a little bit of sun, uh, and we were able to go on the beach. I think we spent maybe three or four days on the beach, and one of the beaches that we uh, went on to was a lovely sandy beach. It was probably at least a mile uh, of lovely golden sand. Uh, the sea was quite a long way out, and we went out to the sea, and we spent some time in the sea uh, messing around, playing with the kids, throwing the ball around. Uh, and what can happen when you're out at sea is slowly but surely, without realizing it, the wind and the tides and the currents just edge you further down the beach. So when you turn around and decide to go back to where you put your, your towel down, sometimes you can be 100 yards further down the beach and you've, you've just drifted uh, without even realizing. And Christians can drift. And churches can drift without even realizing. And so 
this morning, as I said, it's a good opportunity for us uh, to take stock and ask the question, what are we aiming at? What's the, the job of the church? What are we to be about? Those questions are good to help us or to stop us from drifting. They're questions that keep us anchored. We're going to look at Acts 2, but before we do, I want to read some verses from Matthew uh, chapter 28, because if there are some verses that I think uh, sharpen our focus and help us to see what we're to be about as a church, it's the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28. Here Jesus has risen, he's alive, he's speaking to his disciples, and he says this to them, verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Making disciples. That, I think, captivates something that is very close to the heart of what we're to be about as a church, making disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is a, a learner and a follower. A learner and a follower. I have a brother who's a, uh, a joiner, a carpenter, and he's got a workshop, and he has an apprentice the job of the apprentice is to learn from the, the master, to follow in the footsteps of the master. The master will, will, will teach the apprentice. At times, he may even take hold of the apprentice's hands and show him the skills that he needs to learn. In a way, being a disciple is a bit like being an apprentice. We may think of the church as like Jesus' workshop where his followers uh, learn their craft. And as Jesus instructs his disciples to make disciples, there are other words that describe how they are to do that. They're to go, they're to baptize, and they're to teach. And I think it's helpful for us as a church as we think about this task of making disciples to have these two uh, marker posts in our minds of baptism and teaching obedience. Baptism and teaching obedience. Baptism, we're going to think a little bit more about the significance of that as we look at Acts 2 this morning. But that marks the start of discipleship. And then from there, the role of the church, the whole church, is to teach growing obedience. With that in mind, let's uh, turn to Acts chapter 2. And if you've got your Bible, it'd be really helpful uh, to have it open there to Acts chapter 2. And I just want to make three observations that we see in Acts 2. In Acts 2, at the day of Pentecost, Jesus has died, he's risen, he's ascended to his Father, and he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon his people. And the New Testament church begins to grow. And we see the 12 disciples, they are in the process of making other disciples. This is the, the great commission beginning to, to unfold. 
The first observation I want to make is that on Pentecost, there is a message preached. Peter stands up, he preaches, and the message that is preached is a message all about Jesus. The message is all about Jesus. That's very obvious, isn't it? Very obvious, but it's helpful for us as a church to keep that clarity. Our message is about Jesus. Peter, when he stands up, he doesn't preach about fulfilling our potential. He doesn't preach about self-improvement. He doesn't give some helpful tips or some good advice. He stands up and he proclaims a message about the Lord Jesus. It's about his life. Listen, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. First word in the sermon, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth talks about Jesus' remarkable life. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your myths as you yourselves know. Jesus is not a myth. He's not a metaphor. Jesus is a, is a man. He's a man who lived. He lived in Nazareth and he was a remarkable man. Peter knew Jesus. He'd seen the miracles that he'd done. God had clearly put his stamp of approval on Jesus' life. So the message is about Jesus' life. It's about Jesus' death. Listen to how Peter goes on. This Jesus, he says, delivered up by, according to the definite plan of, and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men message about Jesus' death. And as Peter speaks about Jesus' death, he speaks about Jesus' death from two different perspectives. The first is from an earthly perspective. From one perspective, Jesus died at the hands of lawless men. People didn't like him. Jesus' death was an act of rebellion, an expression of human lawlessness. Jesus came as the king and men in the first century said, we will not have this man to rule over us. That was why Jesus died. And men and women, boys and girls in the 21st century are no different to those in the first century. We are rebels. We want to go our own way. We do not want Jesus to rule over us. But from another perspective... From the perspective of heaven, a more comprehensive perspective. Jesus' death is according to the plan of God. Jesus came to die. He didn't come to be an inspirational example. He didn't come simply to be a good teacher. He came to die. And his death was according to the plan of God. He was delivered up, Peter preaches. His death was a substitution. He died in our place. His death was a sacrifice. He died for our sins. For your sins, for mine. That's why when Peter preaches and he gets towards the end of the sermon and he encourages people to receive Jesus, to repent, to turn to him, he says you will receive forgiveness of sins. That forgiveness is available because Jesus died. 
It's a message about Jesus' life, Jesus' death. It's also a message about Jesus' resurrection. Here he goes on. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus rose again. This man of Nazareth, he died. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped breathing. He was laid in the tomb for three days. And then after three days, his heart begins to beat. His lungs begin to breathe. His blood begins to flow. And the victorious Jesus emerges from the tomb, the victor over death. He comes out into a world that's covered by the shadow of death. He comes out into a world that's dominated by the fear of death. Yet he is the, the victor over death, the death beater. And so Peter proclaims this Jesus God raised up and we are all witnesses of it. The apostles, they, they saw him, they lived with him. They saw him die. They saw him on the other side of, after the resurrection. They were witnesses. But there was a prior witness to the apostles. I don't know if you noticed, as we read through Acts 2, there is lots of Old Testament quotations. Prophesying and foretelling that Jesus, the Christ, would rise again. The scriptures, the Old Testament, witness to the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. It's his life, his death, his resurrection, and then a message about his exaltation. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, Peter says, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Where is Jesus this morning? Where is Jesus? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has the name above every other name. He has all authority over every square inch of this creation. He rightfully claims mine. He's the king of heaven. He's the Lord of all. Is there any evidence for that claim? Well, Peter says yes. The day of Pentecost is evidence for that claim. Jesus has received from his father the promised spirit and now he pours it out on all of his people. And so what takes place on Pentecost as the church grows from 120 to 3,120? That's evidence that Christ is risen and exalted. As the church spreads across the globe, that's evidence of the risen Jesus and his rule. As we gather here this morning, we are evidence of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is like a victorious general, returning to claim his crown and pour out blessings upon his people. And so Peter, as he preaches, did you see what he holds out to people? He says, when you turn and receive Jesus, you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's true of everyone who turns to Jesus. That's the message. It's a clear message, isn't it? It's a clear testament to Jesus.
And for us as a church, that is our message. We bear witness to Jesus. And we need that clarity. The church hasn't always had that clarity. If you were to go out into the the streets of Lancaster and ask, what is the message of the church? All sorts of responses, wouldn't you? All sorts. Be good. Try hard. Be nice. Give your money. All sorts of messages. But the, the true message of the true church is Jesus Christ. His life, death, resurrection, exaltation. That's the first observation. Second observation. It's the message about Jesus that makes disciples. That's how disciples are made. Disciples are made by the message about Jesus. I said already, didn't I? By the end of Acts 2, the church has multiplied dramatically. 120 to 3,120. And that, that multiplication has taken place because of the message about Jesus. So as Peter preaches, he reaches the kind of thrust, the punchline of his, of his sermon. Verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. You've killed the king. But Peter says, and at that message, what effect does that have on the people listening? It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Were cut to the heart. That's more than just a statement about their kind of internal emotional state. Of course, they were upset. They were undone. They didn't know what to do. But being cut to the heart means that their hearts were exposed. Before they heard this message, they thought they were good people. They thought it was the right thing to oppose Jesus. They were self-justified, but now their hearts are laid bare. Paul, in one of his letters to the church, he talks about circumcision of the heart. A cutting away of self-dependence, of sin and self-righteousness. And here, as this message goes out, these people are cut to the heart. There's no way for, no place for them to hide. And for the first time, they see themselves as they, they truly are. They're rebels. They've committed cosmic treason. They've killed the Lord of glory. They've spurned Jesus and his rule. And our hearts are no different. I wonder... Have you ever seen yourself like that? Have you ever been cut to the heart by the message of the gospel? Do you know this experience? Only, only God can bring about this experience in our hearts and lives. And he does it through the message about Jesus. There's a, a well-known writer called Edgar Allan Poe. He's well-known for his poems and his uh, short stories. And he tells uh, a short story entitled A Descent into the Malastrom. Malastrom is a, a whirlpool or a, or a vortex. 
And he tells this story about this man who's out at sea in a boat. He's in this quite sizable fishing boat with his two brothers. Not paying attention, and they end up being dragged into this current, this huge whirlpool. As he describes it, he describes it as almost a mile across. And they're going round and around and around in this, in this vortex. And there's a moment where the man in the story, he realizes, he looks down over the side of the boat into the, the dark depths of the swirl. And he realizes that's where he's heading. And he sees all the debris, the branches, even whole trees in this vortex. And he watches as a tree disappears into the darkness. And terror grips him. And he realizes that if he's to remain in the ship on the boat, he's going to suffer the same fate. And the man describes, he's pondering all this, there's this strange stillness. He has this strange focus. And he begins to watch more closely the swirl. And as he watches the debris go down and down and down, he notices uh, in the vortex, there's also some barrels, some large wooden barrels. (laughs) And they're actually going the opposite way to everything else. They're going up and up and up, rising to the top. He has some barrels on his boat. He yells to his brother, his brothers, but they won't let go of the ship. They're too frightened. But he himself lashes himself to one of the barrels and hurls himself over the side and begins to rise to the top. As Peter preaches to these men in Jerusalem, they realize their peril. They realize that they're like those fishermen on the boat. They realize they're destined for destruction. They're going to face judgment. And Peter urges them, like that man who lashes himself to the barrel, to cling to Jesus. Jesus, the one who brings life and forgiveness. There's an urgency to Peter's words. Listen, he says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, so save yourselves from this crooked generation. The same urgency is needed today, isn't it? We need, we all need the salvation that Jesus brings. People need to hear this message about Jesus. Because it's the message about Jesus that makes disciples. I want to urge you this morning, if you haven't come to trust Jesus, if you have no answers in the face of death, if you know you need forgiveness of sins, then come to him and trust him. And the message about Jesus doesn't only begin the discipleship process, it's the message about Jesus that maintains the discipleship process. Look a bit further down to verses 42 to 47. We see this new community being formed by the message. And as Luke, writing this book of Acts, describes this new community, he says of them that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what this new community did. What were the apostles teaching about? Well, they were teaching the message about Jesus. 
his life, death, his resurrection, his exaltation. And they were taking that message and they were pressing it out into every corner of the lives of the disciples. Showing what the truth about Jesus meant for family life, for work life, for church, for how we treat each other. Showing what the truth about Jesus means for our desires, for our thoughts, for our words, for our hopes, for our fears. Showing what the message about Jesus means for our worship, for our gatherings. The apostles were not just giving lifestyle tips or helping make people feel better or prescribing techniques. All of what they teach flows out of this message about Jesus. And so as a church, we need to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. That devotion isn't just the responsibility of the person who stands up here and preaches. That devotion is the responsibility of every member of the church. Part of the reason uh, that we have home groups is because they provide a space or a framework for us in which to disciple one another. A space where we can open our Bibles together and talk together and help one another plumb some of the depths and riches of this gospel message that we can press the message into our lives and grow in our obedience. Outside of home groups, in all of our relationships, it's important that we, we take time to go beyond what is superficial so that we can know and be known. Sometimes that might be uncomfortable and hard, but it's the business of the church to make disciples. And that includes our own discipleship. Think of the family. That's the place where children grow and are nurtured. The church family is the place where disciples are to be matured and made. That's the second observation. First observation, the message is about Jesus. The second observation, it's the message that makes disciples. The third observation from Acts chapter 2 is this. The start of discipleship is signified by water baptism. The start of discipleship is signified by water baptism. These people who are cut to the heart, who are undone, they ask Peter, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then Luke goes on to describe, so those who received the word were baptized. They were added that day. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. That day, 3,000 people stepped onto the pathway of discipleship. They became followers of Jesus. The start of discipleship is signified by baptism. That's the pattern we see through the book of Acts. People repent. They receive the word. They believe be baptized. John Stott, a well-known Bible teacher, writes this. Submission to baptism in the name of Christ. Submission to baptism in the name of Christ. We have, in the name of the Christ we have formally repudiated. Gives public evidence of penitent faith in him. Additionally, by this same repentance, faith and baptism... We change allegiance as we are transferred into the new community 
of Jesus. Baptism marks a turning point. Paul's going to be baptized this morning. And baptism is really significant. And as we prepare to witness this act of baptism, just got three words that will just help us think clearly about what it is that we're doing this morning in this baptism. Here's the first word. The first word is gospel. This act of baptism speaks to us really clearly about the gospel. Someone has written, baptism is one of the purest moments of declaring, enacting, and embodying the gospel itself. As we watch Paul go down into the waters and hopefully (laughs) come back up again, uh, it's a picture of of the gospel. It's a death and 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 a resurrection. It's down into the waters of judgment and up to new life. The water also speaks of washing. And forgiveness. It's not baptism that achieves the washing and forgiveness. It's the blood of Jesus that achieves that. But baptism reminds us of that washing. That's the first thing, gospel. The second word is union. Union. Baptism signifies union with Jesus Christ. It shows us that we are, are one with him. We've noted, haven't we, already, that it's the message that makes disciples. And it's trusting in Jesus that unites us to him. Baptism is a sign of that union. When I hear the message about Jesus, when I'm cut to the heart, when I turn and trust him, turn and trust in him, I'm united to him by faith. And the gospel tells me that His death, Jesus' death, is my death. And his life has become my life. There is a sense that a baptism service is a funeral service. A memorial. Paul, as you are baptized today, it's a reminder that an old life has passed. A life that was lived without Jesus has gone. And a new life has begun in him. that union isn't only with Jesus, it's with his people, the church. Baptism is baptism into Jesus Christ and into his body. Union with this family of faith, brothers and sisters to love and be loved by. So gospel, union, and then the final word is physical. Physical. As Peter preached at Pentecost, people were cut to the heart. That's a spiritual reality. The new birth is, an, is internal. It's what God does in us when we begin to be new creatures from the inside out. But new birth has this physical counterpart of, of baptism. Baptism is physical and public, and it marks out those who are, who are disciples of Jesus. I want to say for any this morning who have trusted Jesus, who have repented and have not yet been baptized, that's the step that you need to take. That's where discipleship starts. Baptism is the first step of obedience. And Paul, as you get baptized this morning, you declare physically 
and publicly that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as you do that, uh, we all pray that God would strengthen you and increase your faith. We're going to sing together now. Uh,